And yet, once again, Brian has produced this very beautiful volume. He's unequalled in the production of uh, volumes of poetry that look as they should. And this, is, this one is particularly lovely. I don't know. I remember asking my mother when she was 91 what it felt like, and she said exactly as I did at 19. And so I don't know what all this about old age is. I tell you who did write a very great poem about old age, and that's Saint-Jean Perse. Yes. Uh, I don't remember at what age he died, but it's called, uh, isn't it called Grand Age or something like that? Uh, it begins with that, those words, old age, I welcome you. But uh, the, what came to my mind that I would start by quoting Yeats's lines, an aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Now, you can only say that if the soul is a reality, which in general it is not in our culture, so there's this endless lamentation about mortality. Can't think why. Who would want to live, as Dean Swift pointed out so long ago in Gulliver's Travels, who would want to live on and on and on? If the soul is a reality, then Yeats has spoken for it, and Yeats was also, he was Blake's greatest disciple and first editor. And Blake wrote, when at last I did descry the immortal man that cannot die, through evening shades I haste away to end the labors of my day. And uh, that is how it must be in any culture for which the soul is an immortal being, and by immortal, I don't necessarily mean that there is an afterlife, because immortality is something that can be experienced. It's a dimension of reality, here and now, and not something we have to wait for uh, a post-mortem state. So, my poems of old age, I hope, take the form of praise, although all human speech takes a tinge of sadness, which is inevitable. But it has been my intention to write these poems not at all in complaint about going not gentle into that good night and not waving but uh, drowning and all that, of which we have heard so much. In fact, the Western uh, civilization has produced endless and very, some very beautiful poetry about mortality and its tragic quality. But this is not, this is not, as I have experienced old age, I can only say so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I shall go, roughly speaking, in chronological sequence through this collection, taking poems here and there. And the other thing I think I can say about my old age is that when I was young, I loved nature above all, regarded human beings in a landscape as something that spoiled the view completely. And, 
As I grow older, I care less and less about landscape and find human beings infinitely, inexhaustibly marvelous. And I hope some of that comes out. I, I have learned that much in the course of a long life, to value humanity more than, well, nature is very wonderful too. This is called Time Lag, and I wrote it remembering my first publisher, Tanby Mutu. A few of you now living will remember him, but he came to this country uh, filled with zeal from Ceylon, and he edited a journal called Poetry London, and he published many of us in those days. And he thought that he was conquering the West, but what in fact he did was bring us the East, which uh, has begun for me a long association with Oriental thought and philosophy. So this is Remembering Tambi, my first publisher, and Brian is my last. Words spoken long ago, unheard, unheeded then, voices of friends unprized in time's day to day. Only now in this long after where I am, I have heard messages from one or another whose past is present to me. And before lifetime memories, those spacious regions of the mind, that immemorial imagined land where remembered words were spoken, heard here and now a world away. Drawn to our times and places, who can say what law of that remembered country we obey? Those friends who come and go, knowing no more than we what purposes join hands and hearts from the ends of the earth, from the beginning of time. No truth of the living told or untold can cease to be and will on some predestined day be understood as I have heard wisdom that circles the world spoken long ago by loved, familiar voices. <coughs> this is a very simple poem called Starborn. What music of what star did Schubert hear? What celestial power touched Shelley's lyre? What heavenly order raised spires of stone, moulded sculptured gesture of Gothic saint and king? Dear human voices, faces loved and known, from what unseen realm is that beauty born? I think with old age also, when the retrospect becomes long and marvellous, everything seems to be simultaneous. So this is a poem called Fire. On my hearth a clear flame flickers. What more secure, familiar than this room built of ever-speeding light? So swift its motion, it seems to stay constant, yet nothing still but this steady seeming, and I habituate to what appears present before these eyes, this known unknown familiar place. 
beautiful, flickering, translucent flame, blue and yellow and bright, and glowing embers from Earth's deep buried forests return to me here, sun's heat and light, love and wisdom of what foreknowing holds in one moment those green fronds drinking the sun and an old woman by her autumn fire. Fire, wild and free, across millennia you come to me from carboniferous forests where none ever walked. What knowledge of beginnings and endings carries this room and all it holds after my ending, before my beginning, this moment of the ever-changing, never-changing. You will take this body and scatter its ashes fire. Your flickering flames like Logis music at the world's end blaze into such a star as those who send their rays to comfort us with infinite forgiveness of your undoing into unending beginning. What world's consuming sends out that constant light? Fire, subtle undoer, loosener of bonds, free, you are the freer of all that is destructible, perishable, but we by flame cannot be burned, nor can you consume away the intangible thought I offer you in praise as you roar in glory through houses and worlds and universes, turning our dust to stars. Then this poem is called Memory of Sana, in which, of course, is where the, the, the Lord Buddha preached his first sermon, and it is dedicated to Marco Pallas, whom many of you knew and many of you knew of as the great uh, exponent of Buddhism and the perennial philosophy in this country and who was a friend whom I, from whom I learnt immensely much. It was the face, they say, of the enlightened one, recalled his first disciples, unconvinced by words, whose countenance, blissful as life and calm as death, tells all and nothing to generations of our kind, Carved in wood or stone or cast in bronze, silver or gold, great civilizations have adorned with all the treasures of the soul that plenitude of emptiness, that known unknown, the unknown known all know and are. That prince who fled by night his palaces and gardens, fathomed our mystery, whose only scripture is a smile, all read, and know its doctrine to be true, being itself unbounded as the stars. And this is another poem from India. It's on a head of Parvati, a little um, clay sculptured head of Parvati, who is the consort of the Lord Shiva and comes from high in the Himalayas 
and uh, I have a little copy of it that I got in the uh, National Museum in, in Delhi. Poverty, whose likeness dreaming hands have wrought from dried clay of India, who are you? Whence that beauty, noble and peaceful face of love? Who's that serene presence present here in my room? From what mind, what thought, that aspect of beatitude? Whose love, for whom? Mystery of love we both receive and give. That goddess face comes from high and far, still mountain lake reflecting clouds, storms, stars, silences, night, her native place. No, these are dream landscapes. I'm not sure how they will go. It was Edwin Muir who said to me long ago, do you ever write poems from dreams? And I said, no. He said, well, after all, dreaming is a third of our life. Dreams are very important communications of knowledge. And their symbols do tend to, in themselves, have meaning, even though that meaning is not necessarily perceived by us. Very often I find myself in a garden in dreams, and usually the garden is terribly neglected and overgrown, and this is one, you probably all know that dream, because dreams, after all, they're universal symbols, and we receive them rather than invent them. Garden I haunt in dream, no longer mine that I revisit still, though that loved place and time is long ago, and I return as one barely remembered where home was. I try to free the delicate rock plants choked with grass, but always I must leave the task undone. At other times, it's a walled, formal garden where flowers still struggle abandoned among weeds or the neglected greenhouses are in my care. I long to restore them to their former beauty, those great collections of rare plants, unwatered, untended, the task always beyond my power. But one night I saw what gave me hope, a few clumps of iris bulbs and scillas blooming <clears throat> and clear the earth where some gardener had planted cuttings of chrysanthemum, my mother's flower, roughly and carelessly, yet someone had remembered her and set the divided roots to grow again in soul's neglected garden. Then this dream is, was rather a terrible dream. Last night a deer had got into my London garden. First it stood patiently. I watched it long. It did not cross my mind that it must starve. Until too late I saw it lying, not dead, but dying. And as I woke, that one clear image stayed as day brought back the very garden where that gentle deer had stood that now lay dying. 
My Jungian friends tell me the deer is very often a Christ symbol. Then this is a very obvious, simple sort of information dream, sometimes given in a rather prosaic form. In a dream, I was a stranger in the small house of a follower of William Blake, who once lived there, outside, a cottage border of summer flowers I used to grow, among them Jacob's Ladder. Dreams slip in unawares their messages, and I woke remembering angels ascending and descending. And of course, Blake painted one of his most magnificent paintings was of Jacob's Ladder with the angels ascending and descending and yet the dream gave it in the form of a cottage garden flower they're extremely ingenious <laughs> I think that's perhaps enough of those and this is a Sequence on Lost Paradise. I think I read it all, perhaps. Lost Paradise. And the first is called Persephone Remembers. How did I lose my way from those bright fields of memory's unfading flowers? I see them in mind's eye, buttercups, clover, burnet rose, in unmown meadows once blooming eternally gone from here and now, where I am always. There they still delight these flowers of paradise, one sunny day, a little girl strayed unawares to reenact lost innocence, who will again, far from home unloved, eat the pomegranate seeds. For such a few only of time's innumerable days to lose that happy place. If only she had known I used to sorrow when I read her story in a book of myths. Not she, but the story knew that what must be is what has been. It's a very Neoplatonic poem, really, isn't it? That uh, the other state or condition is the, the true home of the soul and the state of beatitude. Then this is called Paradise Seed. Where is the seed of the tree felled, of the forest burned, or living root under ash and cinders? From woven bud what last leaf strives into life, last shriveled flower? Is fruit of our harvest, our long labor dust to the core? To what far fair land, born on the wind, what winged seed or spark of fire from holocaust to kindle a star? Then the third is called Nowhere which is a, a phrase that would be very, under, very well understood in Sufi parlance. Nowhere. There is a place more real than here that is nowhere. From regions of memory, boundless joy opens its distances. Regions of loss, vast as love, high as heart aspires. 
far, far, and wide as absence, those groves and fields, long as departure its rivers flow beyond hope's reach, realms of elsewhere, whose time is once, whose place is away. In long-ago gardens, those bird voices sing of our loves that never were, yet deep as life, yet all that we are. And then this is the last, it's called The Dream. What land is native to us but a dream we have told one another, leaf by leaf, golden bough and golden flower, fountain and tree and stream, that paradise unseen. It's unheard music we have sung, lover to lover, in sunlit glades we have depicted her, our Eve, our primavera, and sweet Virgin Mary with all her babes, whose bliss is ours. Not that our fingers played with strand of golden hair, or reached for that ripe fruit she offers, or lily flower, holy mother to holy child. But we have made it so, those angels, sinless saints, souls who, purified by death, dwell in our images forever, neither come nor go from that imagined place. We who have loved and known beauty only as we have traced those presences, robed and adorned with beyond price jewels of our imagining. Is it that we are semblances in the enactment of a dream that dreams us, life by shadowy life, in Eden, under those bright boughs, beside that flowing stream? Then this is a very short poem about woman, dedicated to Rita, a friend. To my transient self I say, you have not written, nor will ever, the untold of all women who have been and will be, through whom for a time in me, life has received and given love's mystery. This is a poem entitled Words, and I've dedicated it to Wendell Berry, poet, whom you will be hearing, if you, I hope you will, come in September, also to be published by Brian. Falling so simply into place, as if given at need from elsewhere, words of a poem return 
first heard by a long-ago child in love-known voices of father and mother, teachers and strangers entrusted our human hard-won utterance of heart's truth, mind's inheritance from one to another told and retold, names we've given to the creatures speaking the known unknowable meaning of the world from hearts of the ever-living created carried through time from the beginning talismans talents exchanged multiplied or lost defaced buried in the dust this human language so briefly ours received and given treasury of words to praise, to understand, remind, enchant, delight, and know and comfort one another. Unfortunately, we let go to a very great extent our greatest national inheritance, which is the English language, which has come to us laden with such riches of meaning which uh, is reduced nowadays to the vocabulary of a news bulletin or a chat show or one of the Sunday newspapers. However, one mustn't be bitter. One must do one's best with words nevertheless. This is called memory places. It's an experience I expect many of you have had. A sudden flash as if you were in some place that was absolutely real and known which is not one's own memory. Memory places, but not ours, those flashes of recollection. From what unknown elsewhere, an old wall, the corner of a stair, familiar, yet when and where, to whom? For an instant I was that other's presence there in a country that is nowhere, a place not vague or shadowy, but clear as a room painted by Chardin or Vermeer or Bonnard's garden or Sienese balcony where angel reflected from an inner heaven communes with virgin reverie. Oh, where are those gardens, fragrant with basil and orange trees, in long-ago cities no archaeologist can disinter from this world's dust? Once and forever they are, though no path comes or goes, the numberless hours and days of the living. An essence, breath of a life not mine, from, here and, from a here and now, far as stars, light years away, whose past reaches our present when they no longer are. As unshed tears, that sunlit wall, that corner of a stair. Then this is a short poem. Several short poems, perhaps. Well, the old falls silent, not from forgetfulness of lifelong memories, nor from indifference, but plenitude, 
of ocean fills each shining drop of London rain that hangs and trembles, fills with all seas, all rivers, lakes, wells, tears, diamond light, stars, spheres, here poised in momentary presence. We could gaze forever on that infinite. as myself, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. What do we know of one another who only see body that perishes? Invisible life is boundless as sky, contains all worlds, rivers and trees, capacious thought, patterned in stone, in air, our dreams told and untold, our music of strings, flutes, perpetual choirs and lonely voices, and ah, neighbours as myself, through what nights of sorrow, of remorse, of God, of darkness, we hope on, and world hopes on in us. I know you, brothers and sisters, in my own bewildered, wounded, worshipping heart. Got to know what to read and what to read. This is called a prayer to the Lord Shiva, and I, I've dedicated it to a devotee of the Lord Shiva, an Indian friend, Karen Singh. Because it was from him that I got this information about why the worship of this terrible god, Shiva, the destroyer, the destroyer of all that is in time, the dancer in the crematorium. We all know that wonderful icon of the, of the, of the Nataraja, the, the dancer of time. He is time, he is destruction. He is the phallic god because what comes into being must be destroyed. And Karen Singh said to me, by identifying yourself with the dark side of God, you overcome the fear of death, destruction and darkness because this also is, 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 is divine, the one God. And of course this is very much the, we cannot but feel that the image of Shiva is one that belongs in a very special way to this age of destruction of civilizations, ending of bloodshed, of war, and of uh, a great change coming over the world. Who knows what will come after that destruction? But unless much is destroyed, there cannot be the, the regeneration and recreation which we would all wish to hope for in darkness. Here where the heart is dead, blood shed, I seek refuge in heart's blood. In the destroyer, from world's destruction, I seek refuge. From the slaughterer, the wounder, hide in the wound. From the killer, claim sanctuary in death. With all who pray beyond mortality to reach that secret bliss.
And this poem is also dedicated to an Indian friend, Ramu Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi and a philosopher whom some of us met in India uh, about a year and a half ago was our last uh, Peter Malikin and Keith Critchlow and I, we all know him and love him. And he quoted to me a poem by Kabir which says, we all know about the drop in the ocean, but what about the ocean in the drop? That is Kabir. Of this outpoured abundance, how little my small cup can hold. It overflows, flows away, and yet my thirst is quenched. Drop in the ocean, in whose each drop all each can contain. How possess more or less of being invisible, indivisible in the minute as in the whole? I read that again because it spoils the poem when one slips. Of this outpoured abundance, how little my small cup can hold. It overflows, flows away, and yet my thirst is quenched. Drop in the ocean, in whose each drop all each can contain. How possess more or less of being, indivisible, in the minute as in the whole. Then this is another garden poem, another part of the garden. The speeding flowers, not the banal lament that they wither, they open like birds in flight. Their alighting and departure moves with the heavens, descending, ascending, lily and rose, sparrow and robin, airy acacia and heavy sycamore and summer jasmine like shooting stars. This is a poem written after hearing a recording of music by Hildegard of Bingen. I heard soul singing in rapturous, lonely voice. Her face only God sees, hidden in the heart of the one beloved, as in the evening a bird alone, her song in praise of the unknown. There are two other poems that I would like to read you from this book uh, that I seem to have uh, lost in the process of um, turning the pages. Yes, here we are. The turquoise sunset evening sky asked, why stay below? For here spaces are infinite where angels are unbounded from star to star. I replied, soul builds her house in the fleeting here and now of once and never again forever 
What do angels know of the human ways of sorrow? Sky said, you will be returning soon to where memory gives place to ever-presence. And I, through lifelong years, we love dear human faces that must die. Then this is called Poppy Flower. It uh, opened on the day when there was a very terrible earthquake in Persia. Today a wondrous hundredfold poppy with muddled mauve and crimson petals has opened at my garden door in once only miraculous epiphany. And who am I that the creator of numberless worlds should send this gift from the inexhaustible treasury? Today in Persia, a mountain shook human multitudes with no more concern than fallen petals or stars in galaxies. And who are we in that presence to whom large and small, many and one are alike, are nothing, are all? How long have I been reading, Brian? Uh, I don't know. One or two more. This is three quarters of an hour so far. Three quarters of an hour. If you feel up to a few more, one or two more. Yes. <laughs> if you feel up to one or two oh, more. <laughs> what have I got here? If I sit at this point, can you, can you say, invisible one, you have not heard my wisdom. Time is too far, that endless journey away. Then shall we meet in death at the end of time, I say, my lost companion. But you reply only, listen. Now. How hard we try, foolish and ignorant, who would do better to follow heart's desire or the way the quiet clouds are carried afar. How hard we have tried, yet have done wrong always. Better to have followed the heart whose love is without knowledge of evil and good we try so hard to do right, who do not know the purposes that have brought us from the beginning to our times and places. I have tried through the long days of sorrow, but there is no certainty of tomorrow. Through the dark ways, what guide but heart's delight? Then this is quite a simple poem called Young Tree. It's a, a young acacia tree that sowed itself in my garden and I know it to be seven years old and it flowered this spring for the first time. Very beautiful, the birds love it. And the question asked is one which is uh, very much part of the ancient Zoroastrian pre-Islamic Persian knowledge. Uh, I, we have here with us 
a great Zoroastrian scholar, Pilu, jungle waller, Pilu Nanavati, as she writes. And uh, this I got, in fact, from uh, Henri Corbin's translations, works on Islam, in which he says that the questions asked in the pre-Islamic Persian world was not what is a mountain, what is a tree, what is the world, but who. They are living presences. Green leaves playing in living air, swaying young tree bending in the gentle wind. Seven years grown from seed self-sown to virgin blossoming. Who's the womb where a seed was hidden? Who is the earth and who the sun showering gold? Who the young tree? Who the wind caressing green foliage, white blossom? Then this is very new poem also. Unknowable ground, being or nothing, it is enough that from you rise far and near birds and trees, earth and skies. Fullness or void, enough for me that from you smile human faces, friends I have loved, familiar and dear. That's the great question, is Brahman being or non-being? None knows. We do not know the ground of the universe. People make a great fuss, whether it's a Big Bang or God or something or other, but in fact, it is mystery. It's not only unknown, it's unknowable. But what we do know is the inexhaustible riches that issue from it. Well, I think... That's enough. All right. Yes, Kathleen. Unless anyone particularly wants. I shouldn't open yourself up to office, Kathleen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.